welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia DeBersier. And if you want to support the show, check out our merch store over on Etsy at etsy.com slash shop slash beyond blathers. So this week, we are so excited to be joined by Charles Nye to talk about the coelacanth. Charles is a graduate fellow in the Cetacean Conservation and Genomics Laboratory at Oregon State University and has worked as a research assistant at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, which is a place I've always dreamed of visiting. It's definitely on my, my bucket list. So yeah, we're very excited to have Charles on. Totally. And it's cool too. We've talked about the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute in past episodes. So cool to have someone who's actually worked there. And I think listeners also know how much I love marine mammals and how I try to find a way to talk about them in a bunch of episodes, even though there aren't really any that you can catch in the game. But yeah, really excited to talk later to Charles about all the work that he's doing. It just sounds so cool. So yeah. And we can't forget to mention that Charles is also an artist and does really amazing paleo art over on their Instagram and Twitter. You can find them at The Paint Paddock. Uh, that's with two Ds. And yeah, we love paleo art. It's just such a cool bridge of art and science. And I'm just obsessed with looking at it. So yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Charles. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> uh, is there anything else you wanted to mention about yourself before we get started? Uh, you have it all covered completely, I, I guess. You know, I, I, I'm also a lover of breakfast burritos and <laughs> <laughs> a driver of a Toyota Corolla, but that, that's Perfect. about it. <laughs> Love that. Well, we're super excited to talk about the coelacanth with Charles, and I know this is going to be really great. But first, of course, we have to see what Blathers has to say. So if you bring a coelacanth to Blathers, he'll say... The coelacanth is a deep-sea fish that has been around since the age of the dinosaurs. They were long thought extinct, so when living specimens were discovered, it was quite a shock. Now I'll just have to figure out where in the museum to display it. Fish or fossils? So that's fun. And also, I just wanted to say that there is an interesting fact about the coelacanth in Animal Crossing, and that's that they're the only fish that will appear only when it's raining. That's in New Horizons. It's only when it's raining. And then in the past games, because it's been in all of the games, it was only when it was raining or snowing. So that's cool. And it's also a really rare fish to catch in the game, which makes sense with that description. I don't think I've caught one yet. <laughs> Thinking about I don't think I've now. caught one either. either. Yeah. yeah. I've definitely gone fishing in the rain specifically for it, though. I was like, I'm going to get one, but not yet. I'm playing Stardew Valley a lot right now, so hearing that that's the only fish in Animal Crossing that shows up when it's raining, you know, it's, oh, there's so many more, <laughs> <laughs> like, and environmental things to think about in some other, fi like, fishing mini games. it's like, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, when I play Stardew, I just fish the whole time. I, like, don't care about anything yeah. else. <laughs> just perpetually fishing. That's me in Animal Crossing, too. Like, it, during the first little, like, like what was it March 2020 mm -hmm. was when it came out really and just spent all of my time getting <laughs> everything I could for the aquarium yeah I I don't know if maybe you want to talk about like coelacanth's kind of description first like they're such an interesting looking fish and like blathers was kind of saying they do really feel like a, f a fossil or like something prehistoric and like not of this yeah. world it's interesting actually like you can get a fossil of the coelacanth too, right? It's not just a, a fish in the game. It's part of the fossil hall, I thought. I too. think you can get like um, a Dunkleosaurus, which looks... A, dunk a Dunkleosaurus? Dun the Dunk. The Dunk. <laughs> Dunkle <laughs> the dunk. I'm sorry. I'm searching. Dunkleosteus. Mm. That's wrong. I pronounced it wrong. The, it looks like a fish. I think it is a fish. It might not be. Maybe it is, it a, is fish? a fish. Okay. It's a placoderm. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> but it's got like we we, regret, we don't have any placoderms anymore, and it's so sad. <sighs> Real tragedy, because when you see them, they look like if a rhino was a fish, or like if a machine was a fish, because they've got these like crazy mm -hmm. teeth. Probably not even proper teeth, but like look like teeth in their front of their face. They're so cool, but we're not talking about dunkles. We're talking no, about can't get on that. <laughs> the coelacanths are cool. Yeah, they're. Um... The, the one in the game, I don't think it's specified what species it is. I don't think any fish in the game are specified to what species they are. But I think both 
living species of coelacanth look about the same. They're, they're, they are like a person-sized fish, about 90 kilograms in weight, and have this mottled kind of dark, like dark brownish blue with like brighter like spots over the body. At least based on photos, I've never seen one <laughs> in real life, regrettably. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I knew they were big, but I didn't know they were quite that big. Like that is a large fish. In my notes here, I put down they are a large-ish, deep-ish marine fish. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good description. That's really great. Yeah. yeah. It's always hard to tell in Animal Crossing how big something is because like the coelacanth doesn't really look that big compared to the villager but then you also have like you know sharks that look yeah like, like everything can fit in your pocket so yeah they're all yeah. the same size when you pull out the mola it just like takes up all the screen yeah. <laughs> it's the best that's awesome that's amazing so what is a coelacanth like if we're talking taxonomically does it have any living relatives that we know of that we can sort of relate it to yeah we're talking to them right now coelacanths are really cool so there's uh two main kinds of bony fish they are the ray finned fish so when you think of the word fish like your salmons and your tunas and stuff those are ray finned fish then there's also the lobe finned fish of which there are only three lineages alive today which consist of the coelacanth lungfish and all terrestrial vertebrates are lobe finned fish so That's we are really all fish. Cool. <laughs> I love that. It's a rabbit hole. I was just reading a book today called Fish Don't Exist by Lulu Miller, who's like the Radiolab reporter. And I was just thinking about that, how crazy it is that like the whole tax on a fish makes no sense. But yeah, also like that's so trippy to think about that we are like part one of those lineages from fish. Oh. There's another book I want to read. It's uh, Your Inner Fish. Have you guys heard of that one? I forgot who it's by, but it's very similar talking about like how tetrapods radiated out from from lobe-finned fish and yeah, just connecting us all back to that central point of origin. Yeah, it, it's it's so bizarre that there's only well, I say only 3 lineages left because we have all land vertebrates are so diverse, right? But to know that one of our closest evolutionary relatives as a group are coelacanths is is wow that's pretty (laughs) amazing yeah that in itself is like one of those things that really makes you question like your perception of humanity in (laughs) the whole cosmos but yeah yeah it's awesome yeah so they're a lobe finned fish uh they're they're called that because um we see a ray finned fish they they have like the the bony fin right and the very thin membrane connecting them lobe finned fish have also the bony hand right the bony fins but in them are like muscular kind of meaty bits that connect them all together. And coelacanths, if you look at a picture of one, you'll see that their fins are thick. <laughs> like they have some substance. Like they've to gone them. to the gym. Like the, the, these are fish that go to the gym regularly. Yeah. Gym bro fish. And this is part of the uh, yeah, gym bro fish. <laughs> Confirmed here, coelacanths are gym bros. <laughs> I, I want someone to make a, a some fan art of that. Yeah. Please. <laughs> A coelacanth lifting like, I don't know, like five kilograms. I don't know how much they could lift, but <laughs> but yeah, so the meaty little bits. And uh, that's actually part of the reason why uh, lobe and fish were able to go onto land is because their their limbs have more musculature behind them. So they could flap their way onto the surface and try their best. <laughs> I was going to ask, though, I mean, Blathers talks about this. Can you tell us the story? What What on earth is going on here with we thought it was extinct? It wasn't extinct. What's the history there? Yeah, it's, it's super weird. So coelacanths uh, were first described as a fossil taxon, so a fossil organism, uh, with the last of them having apparently d- disappeared from the fossil record at the Cretaceous. So that's the part of the Mesozoic era, around 120, 130-ish million years to 66, the last uh, chunk of time where the dinosaurs existed. Um, so they disappeared from the fossil record, as far as we know. And then in the 1930s, uh, a, I forget if it was a scientific survey, but some scientists, some, some uh, Western scientists were in Africa, South Africa, and they found coelacanths in a fish market. Uh, it was, I think, 1939 is when it was formally described in uh, Western scientific uh, literature. But of course, locals had known about them for generations. 
but yeah, so coelacanths kind of just vanished from the fossil record and reappeared. It's probably because of some like sampling error or like they fossilized in places that we can't access. Also, the continents um, after the Cretaceous look kind of how they look today. So there wasn't any major shifting of marine sediment onto land anymore or, you know, to the same extent. So there probably are coelacanth fossils are just probably in the ocean. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even think of that. Like, of course, if things look pretty much the same, we're not going to be finding coelacanths on the top of mountains like in Burgess Shale or anything like that. That's really neat. Yeah, that was the first species. Uh, so uh, all known coelacanths today are under the genus Latimeria. And so the first species that was uh, re-described or, you know, quote, rediscovered from the 30s, uh, that's, well, it was described in the 30s. <laughs> but there was a second one found in Indonesian waters in 1999. Wow. So not even 30 years ago, a second species of uh, modern coelacanth was found. Uh, and the natives there, the native Indonesian language, uh, referred to coelacanths as Raha Laut which means king of the sea. And it's so cool. That's an awesome name. <laughs> Rahalaut. Indonesian and Malay like names for animals are so cool. Like orang- orangutan. It's like, I, I feel like it's very, I don't know, personifying is not really the right word, but I love, I, I, it feels very like neighborly. Like it's like the idea of like people who live in the forest or that kind of thing. It's really nice. Does it mean person who lives in the forest or? Yeah, I think orang that's what orangutan means or or jungle. Mm-hmm. Um my mom is speaks Malay. I know she's explained it to me so many <laughs> times. She loves orangutan. Better hope she has listened to this podcast. <laughs> it reminds me a lot of the uh, like uh Hawaiian languages like names for their own animals too. I, I, like I wish we could have a better record of what people call <laughs> the animals where they, they live, like the endemic languages because again, Rahalaut is so beautiful. I don't even know what the native South African languages would call a coelacanth, but yeah. So we have two species around today, one from the 30s, well, one found in the 30s, and one found in the 90s. Uh, and who knows <laughs> if there's any left, but they're pretty scarce today. Yeah, that's because I was going to say, like, for such a big fish to only have been, like, quote, discovered, uh, like, by Western science in the 90s, like, that's that's so recent. That would make me think, yeah, maybe somewhere. We've, we've known, quote, quote, known T-Rex longer than we've known modern coelacanths. <laughs> That's so crazy. <laughs> oh, it, my God. It's, it's wild. Yeah, these are, these are big fish. Again, big-ish, deep-ish fish. I say deep-ish because they uh, swim down to around 700 meters, give or take. In American <laughs> measurements, it's like 2,000-ish feet. Wow. And yeah, so that's the deepest that they will go. That's kind of on the extreme side. But even still... They're, they're found around a couple hundred meters in depth. So that inaccessibility probably makes them tough to find. And they're also nocturnal. Oh. Yeah. Otherwise, they spend times in caves, which is kind of terrifying. If I were to envision myself scuba diving in the South African waters and in a sea cave, there's just a bunch of coelacanths staring back at you. <laughs> and these guys have teeth. They, they, they hunt other fish. They're, they're, they're big boys. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, do they have a particular hunting strategy? Like, are is there something about the caves that's particularly useful for them? I, I think the caves are primarily just, just to hide during the daytime. Because nothing really eats them. That You know, I don't think we've recorded a predation instance. At least I couldn't find one. But I think people will find shark bites on these guys. So they are preyed upon. But humans don't like how they taste. Apparently they taste really bad. Oh. Which which I think might work for their conservation benefit, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, the the way they hunt, uh, the way as I understand it, it's like how a lot of bigger marine fishes that are kind of slower, like groupers and black sea bass, they just kind of wait <laughs> and swim slowly. And if something comes close enough, they they lunge forward and grab it. Um, and they eat other fishes. I don't know what kinds, but sizable ones, I imagine, if they're the size of a person. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're they're just so chunky looking. Like it looks like <laughs> yeah, I would not want to encounter one in the cave either. The scales that they have, are they just sort of regular fish scales or are they particularly armored? I, I I the way I understand it is that they are quote normal overlapping fish scales. What's really cool about their like skin is that somewhere on their body they have a electrosensory organ. 
kind of like how sharks and some other marine animals have that too. And scientists think that they actually communicate with electrical pulses and senses because A, they're nocturnal. So at night they can't see those like spots that they have on their bodies. And uh, well, I think that's the only (laughs) A, it's the only point I have. (laughs) And so, yeah, uh, they have the receptors probably to communicate, probably to find other fishes in the deep waters too at night. But otherwise, yeah, they like they're they're the surface, <laughs> surface level. They look like a fish, but <laughs> deeper in, or like if you look deeper, you'll see uh, more interesting characteristics. Like again, those lobe fins, those electrosensory organs, and apparently, also, I learned this today too. They give life birth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you know, just because, why not? Let's let's throw another strange attribute out there. <laughs> yeah, sure, you could have a. 25 pups at a time sure (laughs) how common is that for fish i don't know a ton about fish but that's a good question uh more common than you'd think um honestly and it's not necessarily live birth as you would see in mammals right where there's a placenta and all that uh it's it's what's it called ovoviviparous i think is the word for it it's when the mom expels the the young pretty developed but they still have like a yolk sac or something attached to them so it's like a halfway point between just laying eggs and having legitimate life birth. And in fishes and not in like fully aquatic fishes, uh, more common than you think. I know there's uh, some perch species. These are like, you know, your standard issue little marine fish. They will sometimes give life birth and all of the big um, like pelagic sharks, white sharks, hammerheads, whale sharks will also pup to life offspring as well but yeah it's it's surprisingly common in fish is that mostly so that they don't have to spend time tending to eggs and and protecting them they just sort of like have portable eggs (laughs) they're ready to dispense and off you go yeah yeah that's one strategy right to um kind of ensure the survival of the parent right because i don't think they facilitate any kind of uh parent offspring relationship like other organisms that have live births do but they do aggregate but when they're in the sea caves together they do aggregate together and i saw a video on youtube is that primarily a lot of them in these like pockets are juveniles so potentially juveniles will school together and you know safety in numbers kind of thing but yeah the strategy is mom gets to <laughs> not spend a whole lot of time brooding over eggs and gets to just spit out some pre-packaged babies and off she goes <laughs> <laughs> how how old can they get are they relatively Ooh, i don't know <laughs> how old they can get Let's see. Uh, that, that's a it says here like first result i get is national geographic so but average lifespan in the wild they say is up to 60 years that doesn't surprise me long-lived Which fish amazing wow. makes me think what their main source of mortality is because again not a whole lot of things like to eat them and they're pretty big as is and when i think about the south african coast the only big predators i can really think of are like white sharks and orcas but yeah if nothing really likes to eat them maybe there's yeah that's that's (laughs) that's weird and the only reason people catch them is through bycatch there's no market demand for coelacanth so all the specimens scientists have from fish markets bycatch so yeah interesting that must mean they must have a lot of maybe juvenile mortality or maybe just not very many you said they only have 25 pups in a in a turn which is a we think about it a, a pretty big amount for a live birth situation but for a fish you know some some fishes especially once a broadcast bond can have thousands and thousands of eggs expelled yeah but 25 live pups is, is a lot but 25 you know for a fish, 25 isn't a very big number. So it just might be their survival strategy or whatever. And also, they just are inherently kind of rare <laughs> to, to begin with. They're such mysterious animals. I wish we, you know, could learn more about them. But again, it's so hard to survey for them yeah. if they're down that deep, right? And when I think of South Africa and I think of Indonesia, there there, there are sign, like local science programs there, but it's just more support. <laughs> It'd be great to learn more about these guys. You mentioned bycatch is a problem for them. Do they have a conservation status or do we just know so little about their populations they can't even be assigned one? It's kind of a bit of column A, column B for like the the 
they are from observations quite rare right numbering somewhere in the low hundreds to high thousands per like genetically distinct population um, I, I don't think we have any confident population estimates for both species um, which kind of automatically puts them in some kind of conservation measure and i, I think there are i think there is a known population that's numbering beneath 100 individuals so that they're they're scarce but that might just be a natural sort of population density because some animals will naturally be rarer than others uh, just, just given how ecosystem dynamics work and all that but add on the increased bycatch pressure because global fishing pressure is on right so incidental catches are probably up and if i'm honest there might be some kind of black market demand some kind of uh wildlife trading demand for such a rare species you know these are touted as quote quote living fossils they they look interesting they look striking so yeah it's unfortunate that they're, they're probably subject to the same pressures as all other marine life and they're rare which you know doesn't bode very well to them if they're not protected but i do believe there are some conservation measures in place but how how effective they are is kind of we don't know <laughs> we yeah. don't know yet yeah, that's that's funny you mentioned that because I feel like on the show, whenever we do sea creatures, we always try and have like the end of our show, we do conservation, talk about the issues, potential solutions and, and policy and whatnot. But I feel very like repetitive every time we do a sea creature because it's always like the same threats <laughs> and then the same potential solutions because it's, you know, once you get to the oceans, it's it's all a nice big ocean soup and every <laughs> same impacts are affecting everything so but yeah always important to, to talk about nevertheless and it sounds like their range is pretty small too like you mentioned south africa and indonesia do you know if they've been found anywhere else nowhere else oh wow nowhere else huh. living ones they, they, uh, so seal accounts used to be a globally distributed fish in the fossil record they used to be everywhere there's a uh, even coelacanths found in the same formations as Spinosaurus, the like semi-aquatic uh, theropod dinosaur. And so there's some really cool paleo art <laughs> of Spinosaurus eating coelacanths. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they used to be all over the place back in their heyday. And now they've reduced in scale and in scope to these little pockets in the... Uh, I, I'm trying to think of what, what's a good descriptor for that part of the world. <laughs> but like Southern Hemisphere towards Africa, towards Indonesia sort of thing yeah so that's kind of where they're hanging out for the time being i don't think we know of any other populations elsewhere wow that's really interesting especially yeah for a quad like i feel like we always hear of really widespread distributions for all kinds of sea creatures so that's really interesting yeah well when you think about it right they, they don't swim very fast they don't broadcast spawn so uh for the uninitiated a lot of marine animals will kind of they, they don't have physical contact when they mate a lot of them they'll kind of like expel their um their germ cells in the ocean sperm and egg and that mixes in the water column and gets distributed with um the ocean currents so that's why some organisms have super wide uh spread distributions like sea stars <laughs> they don't move very fast but their babies can when they're still larvae but a coelacanth you know they have live pups and those live pups don't go very far you know after being born and the adults don't go very far for any particular reason. What they do do is they participate in the deal migration. So they go up and down the water column, depending on the time of day, to capture their prey. But yeah, otherwise, it's just kind of the perfect recipe to stay isolated. You don't move very fast. You don't distribute your offspring very far. And you might be some kind of niche predator that can only exist under very specific circumstances nowadays. I guess if the species in Indonesia was only found in the 90s, there's. it sounds like there's a chance there could be other places with coelacanths where they haven't been noticed yet. It would not surprise me, especially given that, you know, Indonesia and South Africa are pretty far away from each mm -hmm. other. The, I, I hope, I don't want to say surely, but I hope there's some kind of like corridor of like coelacanth populations kind of dotting that that part of the Pacific all the way from one to the other. I hope there's still some kind of uh, trace of that, no matter how scant, but um, we haven't found it yet. And if anyone wants to go with a, a submarine, an ROV, or just some straight up scuba tanks, please do. <laughs> 
go oh into scary underwater caves and I think that makes it the, the that's the worst part of it is like to find them during the daytime so you want to go you know I mean you can scuba dive at night you shouldn't right <laughs> but uh, people can but like you know most people dive during the day so you have to go during daytime the only place to find them during daytime are these caves <laughs> so you have to cave dive and scuba dive Ugh. cave diving is one of my little phobias that I have it's not <laughs> it, it seems really yeah. scary I don't need to be convinced on why that would be an intimidating <laughs> thing to do. Uh, claustrophobia plus diving. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you dive then? Or like uh, yeah, you... recreationally I do scuba dive, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, how fun. Have you done that in, in Monterey or? Yeah, yeah. So that's where I got my certification and that's where I've done most of my uh, scuba diving. Just for kicks and giggles. Yeah, oh, it's a fun man. time. No coelacanths in Monterey though, sadly. <gasps> Darn. <laughs> <laughs> I've looked. <laughs> too cold was there anything else you wanted to talk about with the coelacanth um there's just such a remarkable creature right they they link back the, to to an origin point that very few of you know general people think about right like it's very easy to feel detached from nature but when you look at things like the coelacanth like lobed fin fishes and see how that progression comes along I don't want to say the progression, but you know this development over evolutionary time. It it's humbling. It, it brings you back to feeling like you're part of some bigger story through evolutionary time. So this is why the coelacanth is so important to me specifically. It, it represents like the, this this part of time where fishes were tr- starting to radiate out into different parts of the world and uh, figure things out, right? As new opportunities came along, evolutionarily speaking, different niches and stuff. And some of those fishes, lobefin fishes, plotted their way onto land. And because of those brave, <laughs> intrepid <laughs> fish, uh, we're here today having conversations. I got to have coffee this morning from my coffee shop, right? Uh, all that because some fish was like, you know what? We're going to do it in their little fishy brain. <laughs> we're going to go for it. <laughs> oh, man. Got to... Raise our glasses to that fish. Did the so much. Ants, some lobefin fishes and <laughs> Tiktaalik, all those, all those fun guys. All those guys. Well, then, I think we should talk a little bit more about the work you've done because I'm just itching to learn more about it and like what your master's is on. Or because are you a master's student? I, I read graduate fellow. Yeah. So yeah, I'm a master's student and I was funded with a graduate fellowship my first year and I'm on a TA ship for the remainder of my time here. Nice. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now uh, in your lab? Yeah, sure. So I'm using a technique called observational genomics, uh, meta barcoding, to kind of see how ecological relationships can be inferred from sampling water, from sampling uh, fecal samples in and around whales. So uh, for the uninitiated, (laughs) this technology basically... uh, the way I like to present it initially is if you were to imagine to take a liter of seawater from a kelp forest, there's bits of things inside that liter of water that you could find genetic material out of. So what kind of things does that come from? Well, probably kelp, probably sea urchins, sea otters, sea stars. And you could find that information from genetic sequencing. So for example, one of my master's chapters is trying to figure out or trying to... Um, we have a good idea of what whales eat, right? But we're not there 24-7 monitoring them as much as we would like to, as much as I would like to. <laughs> you know, we can't just stick a, a GoPro on them and watch them 24 hours. So we have an idea of what they eat, but what if we sequence genetic information from their stomach contents to see and, and confirm some of our suspicions? Uh, and I'm doing that right now with uh, a species of whale called the gray whales. These are um, kind of actually on the smaller side of baleen whales. And, and they're actually quite special because they the eastern Pacific population has, from some estimates, rebounded to whaling, pre-whaling estimates. So a conservation success right there. But also, unfortunately, they've been undergoing a, an unusual mortality rate over the last uh, more unusual mortality events my bad over the last several years and that is you know they, they've been dying in surprisingly high numbers not enough to 
reduce them down to being endangered again, but it's enough to cause some concern. So we don't know what's causing that from a rebounded population of whales. And there's these other variables, political things we want to have sorted for these animals. And what they're eating is, is part of that bigger story. And so people don't like it when you cut open a whale, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> uh, so the next best thing is to harvest their, their fecal material and then sequence out what's left over from the digestive tract to try to confirm what they're eating. So that's the first chapter of my master's thesis. And based on preliminary data, we're finding a lot of things that we expect. So gray whales are known or have been suspected to eat these little mycid shrimps in high abundance off the Oregon coast. But also some some interesting weirder things. They're eating things like uh, olive dwarf purple snails, ghost shrimp, crab larvae, things that people had a hunch about but could never quite confirm or understand. So untangling these uh, kind of mysteries of uh, ecological interactions is my first chapter. And the second chapter is trying to figure out what kinds of ecological communities are indicative or predictive for, of the presence of North Atlantic right whales. So North Atlantic right whales are some of the most endangered whales on the planet today, critically endangered with population estimates of just 300 to 500 individuals and declining. Some people think these guys are on what is called an extinction vortex. It's, it's a very intense term. But essentially, that means that, you know, you're such a low population from what you used to be, that there is side effects of that poor genetic diversity. There are probably things like, well, we know that there are human interactions that are negative to North Atlantic right whales, ship strikes, fishing equipment entanglement rates. I read a paper recently that 80% of all documented right whales from that area of the world were entangled at at least some point in their life. So very critically endangered, very, you know, sensitive species of whale. And seeing them sometimes is just, you know, oh, oh thank God they're still there. <laughs> so the second chapter of my master's thesis is to use uh, environmental sampling to see what kind of, uh, in, like, ecosystem partners that they share when they are seen. And if we could use that to kind of predict how and how many uh, show up based on the time of year or whatever like that. So that's kind of the, the generalized framework of my master's thesis so far. And, and this technology is quite, it's great because you don't have to hurt anything to get genetic information from it. You don't have to go down there with a, uh, a biopsy dart. You don't have to, again, cut open a whale to see what it's eating. And you could have multiple data points over time. You could see what that one whale was eating over you know five years, if you've seen it for five years. So uh, yeah, it, it's it's quite neat to dive into this new world where we're not just looking for the animal, we're looking for their, their footprints, their shadows in the sea. So yeah, that, that's kind of what I've been doing for the last year and a half. <laughs> wow. Time passes really fast. That's Yeah, that this is so cool. I have so many questions. Firstly, so the second chapter, are you also using whale feces to make those ecosystem or are you uh, yes. taking scoops of water? Okay. Uh, uh, it's just scoops of water for that um, chapter, just because um, we have collected that environmental sampling data years ago. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, and at the time, the idea was to, to see what the signals from the water are like. If I had the perfect world with the perfect funding, with the perfect, you know, maybe PhD <laughs> level um, project, I would love to see if there's any kind of fecal um, sampling we could do for those whales but they're so scant in number that even approaching them with a vessel might not be a great idea you know uh, and the only reason why we have for the gray whales is that off the Oregon coast here uh, they're here every year from june to october guaranteed just about so they're, they're kind of the perfect <laughs> uh, you know i don't want to call them quite model organisms but for as far as whales go <laughs> pretty perfect yeah. So how do you go about collecting whale poop for yeah, the, so, the gray whales? Well, uh, they have these marine outhouses. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a there's a fluke instead of the, 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 the man and the woman sign. There's a fluke yeah. there instead. Yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, real talk. Um, so we are in collaboration with another one of our uh, labs here at the Marine Mammal Institute. And uh, every year from June to October, the gray whales are here passing through the Oregon coast. So they go out on a small vessel 
to take photogrammetry, which is a drone. They fly up and they take a picture of the whale uh, to assess its body condition. They also collect other circumstantial data that they they can to try to identify the whale if they recognize it. And when a whale has a, a fecal event, that's <laughs> uh, a net. You take a net, you scoop it up as much as you can. Uh, you can imagine it's pretty... It disperses quickly mm. in the water. So you have to approach very quickly and scoop it up as fast as you can. And then gets rinsed into a container. And then it comes to me where I get to get my little laboratory monkey hands all over it. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. So whale poop floats, at least at first. Is that what At I'm least hearing? at first. At least at first. We, we're worried there might be <laughs> some kind of effect of particulates dropping faster mm. than we can get to it. But... That's sort of the reality of any kind of ecological data collection, any kind of wild animal interaction. You're not going to get perfect sampling every single time, just of so many other variables out there. And sometimes, you know, people are, are lucky to be out there on the water. The Oregon coast is not nearly as sheltered as some other coastlines uh, in North America. It's very exposed. So the second you leave the harbor, you feel <laughs> that... Um, the sway and the rocking and and these brave people are on a little little tiny inflatable vessel and off they go into the unknown to collect data um i've been on the Oregon coast on bigger boats and i've still felt that rick rack and <laughs> yeah that's amazing oh my god and sorry going back to the your second chapter sure. um my other question was so when you sample water you're going to places where the whales have been reported is that so there was a whole sampling kind of schema they had going on um so they would every month go out there on a research vessel to collect seawater from some set st sampling stations known points in cape cod bay massachusetts which is critical right whale feeding habitat i should have said that initially but it has been identified this region has been identified as critical habitat by NOAA, that the national Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. Aha, got it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a critical place for right whales to to use during their uh, migration up and down the East Coast. So there are known sampling stations that the, our collaborating scientists visit. And when there are right whales, they document where they are in proximity to the boat and their behavior as well. So um, I have an assortment of samples from right whales being right next to the boat three to hundred meters away to right whales being nowhere nearby, which gives us a great like idea of, again, of what kind of organisms in a gradient might look like. So what organisms are close to right whales, which ones are further away, right? Are the right whales targeting a certain species or not? Yeah, this, it's so interesting. I was going to ask about the gray whales with sampling them because I know with humpbacks here, they've also had a huge resurgence it's been amazing to see them come back to the salish sea in huge numbers and it's been like such an adjustment because they they're kind of so spatially unaware like they don't have to they haven't had to really think about like am i going to get hit by a ferry or yeah. a cargo ship and so they're they're very unpredictable whereas like we also have a lot of killer whales here and they are so much more aware. Like you're you're not probably going to get your boat hit by a killer whale. Whereas humpbacks can really come up so unexpectedly. So I would definitely be like, I, when you were saying it, it, it can be like a scary job to be following them around in a little boat, I would imagine it, it would be. But it sounds like such important work and I could totally see like, for example, with the, the Southern resident, killer whales here which are so critically endangered and they are so reliant on chinook salmon mm -hmm. um, or at least that that's what we think like specifically chinook and i feel like it would be really interesting to know if they are eating anything else because like some people really think it's like literally only chinook salmon and if there weren't enough chinook salmon like they would not be able to eat anything else whereas other people are like oh, this is just their favorite type of salmon, but if they don't have that, they'll eat other stuff. Like those kinds of questions, I can see how this would be really helpful in answering that. Yeah, I believe me, I would love to work with orcas someday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I've, I've worked with a lot of whales, even before my master's here. Like I've, I've volunteered on uh, whale research boats 
I've been on many a whale watching boat. <laughs> been out at sea a lot when I think about it. And I get seasick, which <laughs> take that as you will. <laughs> um, but yeah, Orca is just kind of, they're always a showstopper for me when I see them. I love all other cetaceans, but they become pretty normal to look at after, if, after a while of exposure. Especially humpbacks, they're pretty much a dime a dozen in Monterey Bay. <laughs> yeah, like, sometimes, like, oh my gosh, I've been to, I've seen humpbacks in Monterey Bay and Maui, and um, Maui during the breeding season, especially, you can't drive along the water and not see a humpback whale spout. Wow. It became pretty normal. <laughs> but yeah, orcas just always stop my heart. They're so striking. Um, I was on a research uh, boat volunteering and a whole pod had come up next to the next to the boat it's a sizable boat but when you see an animal that size in motion it, it puts a stop to your heart you're like hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. i'm glad for this 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 boat and uh you bring out the southern residents and, and those guys are quite distinct from a lot of a lot of other orcas my lab here at oregon state has actually been able to use environmental dna to tell them apart on the population level from other whales so it's not even a species level resolution you can get anymore you can get population level differences between certain organisms if you have you know the the known information about them right and to do some good thing like this for them is a pretty high career ambition (laughs) for me yeah it's so urgent too like i've talked to a lot of yeah my my dad lives on saturna island in, in the gulf islands so that's like quite a important feeding area for them in the summers and yeah so he he has a a hydrophone set up at his place actually like from the department of fisheries and oceans and so the the marine mammal like rescue unit is always coming by our place and (laughs) like chatting with them i mean it just it just seems like such a it's like a job where you're making a difference every day with what you're doing and like all i think all of the scientists who are working on the srkws it's like it's so urgent and like legitimately life or death and you get to know the individuals so well because there's so few of them and yeah i could talk about them all day but does your dad work with uh the conservation groups up there not in any i guess sort of maybe in like a community science sort of way um just because he has the the hydrophone is like hooked up in his basement but that's just because he's in like a good spot for it and he he was like yeah of course so my dad doesn't really, but there is a there's a Saturna Island Marine Research and Education Society, and they help run that hydrophone and like, yeah, because it's kind of an island of mostly retired people, and a lot of them care a lot about <laughs> the the SRKWs, so they arrange talks and that kind of thing. But yeah, I've I've interviewed a lot of people about them, and mm. yeah. They're very important culturally for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't had, I haven't been able to confirm that I've ever cited them, but I did see orcas in Monterey Bay at the same time that the southern residents were there, because for some reason they decided to visit Monterey. Wow! <laughs> yeah, probably in search of something of a new food source. If you know, if you were to ask me, but I had a pair of binoculars and I can't tell orcas apart <laughs> individually. I'm not that good. Uh, with marine mammals just yet someday i'll be able to be oh yeah that's george (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's certainly a lot of people who can do that which is wild and also with because i've done a lot of stories about hydrophones and so just even people who can tell individuals apart just by their calls and everything which is just wild to me I, i was talking to some researchers who can they know like the individual fish in their area like calls i was like what i imagine like a big chart with a bunch of like uh, sonograms on like oh that's this one and that's that one your spotify wrapped is just fish sounds and whale calls yeah i think my heart was actually kind of broken when like i was so excited to talk to this one bioacoustician who there there's very few bioacousticians kind of specializing in whales but like we really need more but I was talking to them and they, I was like, oh, your job must be amazing. Like you just listen to whale calls all day, right? And they were like, no, I I just look at the pictures of the sounds. I don't actually listen to them. Like sometimes if they look really exciting, I'll listen. But I can recognize them just on the, the sonogram. The picture. Or is yeah. that what it's called? The- I think it's called a sonogram. Yeah, sonogram. yeah like the, yeah. the audio file, yeah. I guess. And 
that was very disappointing <laughs> for me. It's like dreams shattered. Aw. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense on like a efficiency. Yeah. Right? Um, point of view. But I can't imagine not <laughs> sitting there for hours with your headphones in. I don't know. It sounds like the perfect job to like lose yourself to. Yeah. But again, they probably have a lot of data to crunch. Those, those sound. Totally. Like, well, and now they're using like AI to comb through it because it's mm-hmm. too much. But yeah, yeah. we use machine learning in meta genomics too, and it's it's kind of above my my pay grade. <laughs> I, I, like it's a little worrying, right? Because I want to make sure I'm still on top of you know the newest hot thing as a young scientist. But there's just new stuff every single day that it kind of makes it impossible to make sure you're at the absolute cutting edge of mm-hmm. anything. Uh, but yeah, artificial intelligence and machine learning is whew, a yeah. lot there. I think it's interesting, too, to see scientists across such different disciplines collaborating on it. Like I, I did, I wrote an article about AI and hydrophones, and it was very interesting to like do kind of half the interviews with people who are like, marine biologists and naturalists who've been working with whales for 40 years, and then to talk to people who are like, working for Microsoft and Google and had never really thought very much about whales before, but then they got to like work on this during a hackathon and then they fell (laughs) in love with it and they realized like how important the work was and kind of to have these really different types of people come together to like save the whales. I don't know. It was very inspiring for me. Part of my funding at Ambari that I got hired because there was a, a grant that they had um, at the time, part of that funding came from NASA oh, because wow. they were interested in using meta barcoding for exoplanetary operations. Oh my gosh! <laughs> what? I think Express. they still are. I know, right? Oh, that is so cool. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> from whales to planets. From whales to planets. <laughs> whales on other planets. <laughs> sky whales. I know sky whales. How okay? I I gotta ask. Like, how did you get into all this? Like, what is your story? <laughs> like, well, this is all about. This is wait. How, how's it go? I, I was gonna make a French Prince joke, but I don't remember the lyrics. Oh, <laughs> oh this is the story. Is the story. Oh no, <laughs> how my life got flipped, turned upside down. <laughs> um, no, yeah. So it started when I was born. <laughs> I I'm, well, well, I'll make this work. I got into marine biology as one of my two greatest little childhood fix, like, you know, mega fixations, marine biology and paleontology. Just huge things, right? Big animals, little <laughs> kid. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. And I still have that intrinsic back of the head, like, ah, that's awesome motivation. But ever since I was little, I, I'd always loved marine biology. And so I naturally became a marine science major in my undergrad before I quickly realized I had no idea what the heck I was doing. <laughs> no one knows what what a marine biologist really is, right? There, there's, there are marine biologist jobs, but very few of them are like unified under a common definition. There, there's a lot of specialization in marine biology. Something that interested me very much was uh, evolutionary biology and all that kind of stuff. And so kind of naturally slipped into conservation genetics in my undergrad and uh, my first research like experience research like assistantship was at my old university cal state monterey bay and i was looking at the genetic divergence of a little uh snail <laughs> a little sea snail tegula funebralis a black turban snail like yay big i actually have a fossil of its uh predecessor right here uh that one my girlfriend got for me i don't know if you guys i don't think the listeners will receive this video but (laughs) it's like a a loony shaped oh wait that was a very canadian thing to say Uh (laughs) it's like a spiral shaped uh shell kind of short um but this is a fossil of one from a couple million years ago uh yeah all across the pacific coast and uh just to see if there's any genetic divergence and there is and then after that i got picked up at imbari as a uh, researcher's assistant, because I was was an am a lab monkey at art. <laughs> I, I love lab work. It's Sorry, kind of... what was Embari? M- yeah, Embari, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research oh, Institute. That was an acronym. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it occurs to me that a lot of people actually haven't heard Embari, you know, like, said 
allowed now yeah mbari some people say mabari and mm. <laughs> m'lady um <laughs> i got picked up at mbari uh because you know my laboratory um affinities uh, quickly into a genetics lab that their environmental dna kind of side and really kicked off from there this whole observational genetics side of my um career and then i i contacted my eventual pi here at oregon state scott baker because i'd read a paper about his edna survey of southern resident orcas Mm -hmm. and was like that's really cool hey (laughs) he was like send me your cv i was like here it is and he goes we'll be in touch (laughs) (laughs) um and so now here i am that's that's how i turned up here at oregon state is i fell in love with the method got really good at it and somehow turned that into working with whales (laughs) with whale data being able to be in this different sphere of uh, marine biology that i never thought i'd be able to go one of the first things i was told my first like first week at cal state monterey bay by a professor was uh if you are expecting to work with whales sharks and dolphins this is not the program for you And as scathing as that is, it's it's true. Marine biology is so multifaceted that, you know, you can't we all can't be shark biologists, right? You, you just there's not enough sharks, <laughs> um, and that encourages people to specialize. But yeah, somehow I turned that around, and here I am now. So haha, <laughs> I get to work on a little bit of everything, which is very fun mm-hmm. to uh, get the chance to do. But yeah, that that's that's my academic story so far. Oh, that's so interesting. As someone who's like trying to like get started in academia, I'm like, hmm, this is very interesting. Like, I'm very interested in genetics. So I'm, you're making me want to take a genetics course next year. I, I recommend it. Like, I didn't think I had what it took to be a geneticist in my undergrad. Like, it just felt so far away. It it What made that switch flip for me was seeing how it was applied in real world science that suddenly made it so much more accessible. Because when you see the dots connect, like, oh, yeah, I get it. That's why I like stats (laughs) a whole lot, as opposed to conventional math. Uh, (laughs) Because there's some kind of real-world application for it, and you could see the theory work out with real data and real decisions being made. So, yeah, do it. We could talk about ACs, Ts, and Gs all day long. (laughs) Yeah. Jeez. Did you take genetics courses in your undergrad? I took exactly one. One? Oh, okay. And it wasn't even genetics, the course. It was conservation genetics. Okay, yeah. 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 Um, So between you, me, and all every listener listening to this, I have never taken a formal genetics class before. (laughs) Ever. No biochem background outside of the general bio and chem like series that you take in undergrad i don't know how i got here don't let them know (laughs) i don't know who let me in but we're doing okay so far (laughs) it goes to show like it's the experience it's not necessarily the lectures that are going to give you what you need yeah it's a lot of practical learn learn you know learn while doing (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, follow your dreams kids (laughs) i like that with that, can we talk a bit about dinosaurs if if you have a moment? <laughs> you know what? I always have a moment for dinosaurs. <laughs> okay, cool, cool, cool. Like what you said you were interested as a kid in dinosaurs. Have you always been doing paleo art? Like your paleo art is so good. I just I'm like, what what are your techniques? Like Oh, tell me a everything lo- a about paleo. A lot of blood, art. sweat, and tears for paleo art. Uh for those listening, uh, th- there is a link between coelacanths and marine biology, and that is the paleontology side of me. Two sides of the same coin. So what animal best fits both categories? Here we are! <laughs> so yeah, so paleo art has been... When I think about the actual scientific illustration elements of paleo art, I've only been doing it for a couple years, really, when I think about it. By a couple, I mean, oof, in this case, like maybe five years, six years, <laughs> but I've always been drawing dinosaurs. I-, I loved dinosaurs since I was a kid, and I never, quote, outgrew that. Where do you get most of your, I don't know, like, I find I'm getting dino news largely from Twitter these days. Do you have, like, a science paper alert going on, or how do you keep in touch with what's happening in that community? 
Great question. Uh, first one, podcasts. <laughs> uh, there's uh, one podcast I love is the Common Descent podcast, and they have a little news section before their major topic. Um, and so that helps me keep with some of the more pertinent vertebrate paleontology news that I like. I also am friends with <laughs> paleontologists, and if there's something particularly spicy, <laughs> they'll let me and others in our group chat know what's going on. There's some very interesting things in the works that I cannot talk about, and it's it's like cursed, wow. <laughs> cursed knowledge that I can't I can't speak <laughs> about yet. Um, very interesting things still happening in paleo. Uh, those are kind of my primary means. Twitter sometimes, but you know how social media news can be very greatly overblown, because even the best, uh, most quote unbiased news sources have some click baity titles and zingers one that comes to mind right now is the um the quote perfectly preserved dinosaur embryo that was mm. recently described um and the thumbnail everyone's using is a scientific illustration of what that dinosaur would have looked like when it was alive it is unfortunately convincing people that's what the specimen looks like right now <laughs> it's like perfect and, um, dinosaur baby <laughs> yeah yeah and An it's egg. like i don't blame them it's a great beautiful piece but it's not what it looks like. It's still fossilized material, but all the bones are there. It, it's in its position it would have been in in life. And yeah, got to temper your expectations. It's still dead, but it's gorgeous. <laughs> it's beautiful. So that's, that's kind of why I am apprehensive about jumping the gun for a lot of these things. Um, but I think I've ingrained myself in the community well enough to like sniff out what new things are on the horizon. Uh, do you have any particular like paleo art resources you really enjoy or do you sort of birds <laughs> birds i have a lot of bird photos on my phone that i've taken um through binoculars and at the monterey Bay aquarium or the oregon coast aquarium just <laughs> sitting there on my phone watching how they move and stuff because birds are dinosaurs blathers is a dinosaur uh, one of the coolest things in animal crossing uh, the, the New Horizons game is the the cladogram that's on the floor of the museum is kind of accurate. <laughs> Where like uh, if you follow the branch far enough to the villager section, you'll see that the, that the bird folk are descended from the dinosaur branch, and it's like yes, <laughs> good job game. Um, so a lot of birds, a lot of photos of birds, and other contemporary reptiles as well. Um, it's very difficult to get a perfect reference for any dinosaur right because nothing alive is quite like how they used to be um i'm feeling that right now pretty hard i'm drawing a stegosaurus as one of my last pieces of this year and nothing on earth today has those dorsal uh osteoderms like that crocodilians have have dorsal osteoderms but they look they're bumps they're not flat plates sticking out of your back in two rows <laughs> and so finding yeah finding a good analog that looks convincing is tough and generally we go back to birds <laughs> for dinosaurs for other animals like there were of course paleo mammals paleo crocodilians that you could probably you know draw a straight line between them and now today but of course i chose the harder ones <laughs> <laughs> oh man i was gonna ask where people can find your paleo art um, if they want to check it out, and also if there's anything else that you wanted to plug. Sure, yeah. So um, my paleo art is all under my uh, handle across all social media, except TikTok, as uh, The Paint Paddock. Uh, paddock is in like an enclosed area with two Ds. Um, so everywhere, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, no MySpace. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a SciCom-ish kind of main Twitter account, at Guy. Um, because of course my last name kind of trapped me into <laughs> a life of science. There's nothing else I could have been, honestly. When I think about it, nothing else would have fit just as well. So that, that those are kind of my the, the main platforms you'll find me at. Um, and my paleo art is all over the place there if you're interested. And yeah, it's it's been a very fun journey to that end. And again, stepping back, that, that's why I, I love the coelacanth. I love paleo things. I love the story of life on Earth and how everything is interconnected as a conservation biologist, as a geneticist, as a marine biologist, as all these different hats I wear. It all comes down to like, what's the relationship of all life on Earth? That's why I use birds for reference <laughs> for dinosaurs and et cetera and so on. And 
thinking like a geneticist does everything is related i just made a taxonomic tree of all the organisms we find in the gray whale fecal samples perfect alignment in some parts of their uh, gene sequence perfect mm-hmm. it's just a nice solid <laughs> block of all the same colors and you're like it's beautiful <laughs> oh wow i love that yeah that's such an inspiring like end for an episode <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to sound clip that one for sure yeah <laughs> well thanks for having me on guys this is very fun yeah thank you so much for coming on and yeah talking to us about all your different passions and how they all come together yeah yeah i just oh i feel so nerdy right now it's like excited about facts like so interesting <laughs> so it was oh wonderful to talk to you yeah and thank you everyone so much for listening don't forget to follow charles on instagram and twitter and check out our merch store at etsy.com shop slash beyond blathers to help support the show Tune in next week to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye. Bye.